All right, guys, 100th episode. Now now we're afraid to say things because now we're being recorded. Exactly. <laughs> it's terrible. No more shooting the shit. Yeah, the hottest takes are over. Only lukewarm takes now. <laughs> Welcome to Ontario Lab, a podcast about politics, public policy, and current affairs, hosted by recovering political and policy staff right here in Ontario. I'm Chris Martin. I'm Alexi White. I'm Sam Andrian. I'm Alvin Tejo. And I'm Karima Talwar Kapoor. And today we have a very special podcast for you. We are all here, which doesn't always happen, and we are all here because it is our 100th episode. I'm not even going to find a sound effect. I'm just going to keep that in. Um, But uh, that's right. We have been doing this thing for close to two years now. uh, And in that time, we've produced 100 pods. Um, That is, of course, including bonus pods and the weird Star Trek one we did once. Uh, It exists. You can go into the back catalog and find it. Uh, Super wild. Um, But it is also coming up on a year since we did our first recording, uh, which, due to my lack of technical awareness, took us several months to actually release. So we launched the podcast in October. But I mean, in that time, uh, it's been an amazing ride. We've had amazing guests. I've met lots of amazing people, covered issues in a way that I felt like I was really proud to cover uh, and I think maybe had some fun along the way so um yeah I'm just, I'm uh, super excited to you know be here with you guys thoughts reflections on this like obviously super momentous day for not just us but Ontario <laughs> <laughs> there should be an Ontario loud day um decreed by the legislature at some point in the future I'll get that right into Premier Ford. <laughs> it's kind of wild. It feels it's been a fun ride. It, uh, I expected this to be like a summer project for, you know, post uh, the election. And it's turned many people more than I ever thought possible have listened. And it's turned into quite something. I'm I'm really happy about it. Yeah, totally. Being being far away from you guys in BC, it's also just uh, it's definitely made me feel more connected both to all of you guys, but also just to the, the bizarre past two years of Ontario politics and uh, and policy so um it's been great from from that perspective to stay in touch and i'm always looking forward to recording every week pulling the curtain back a little bit i think most listeners um might be surprised to hear that we're not together in the same room all the time and especially during covid we've been recording separately and remotely obviously from home um but i do think there are times where we do get together on a college or university campus uh we won't necessarily name those and sometimes chris's apartment that uh i think we have a good or better conversation because we're sitting next to each other and we can work off each other better uh fun fact grima and i have never actually met each other in real life yeah. no way that's yeah. crazy yeah. You're kidding me. Huh. I mean, I, I'm very I'm very keen on this on this Ontario Loud team, but want to give a shout out to uh, Shazia uh, and Kate who uh, were along the ride with us as well, uh, as well as uh, Harman Mundy, Aisha Anwar, Philip Askew, who have uh, been amazing volunteers for us. Uh, yeah, this will also be the end of our third season, uh, which we have been in for about a year now. Uh, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> seasons are meaningless, Chris. <laughs> We've been a little bit loose with the season timing, I will admit. Um, but we typically go on an August or early September hiatus. Uh, so we're going to be doing that again this year. Uh, enjoy some of the summer before uh, the second wave September lockdown uh, forces us back <laughs> inside. say the word. Three pods a week. Three pods a week. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> just we're gonna just start a live stream and just keep it going. <laughs> um, but we will we will miss you all. Uh, you the listeners. Well, we're gone. Uh, we may come back if there are any sort of massive developments. I'm thinking maybe if um, you know Stephen Lecce is actually threatening to announce a back to school plan. So you know maybe we want to talk about something like that. Um, but I personally subscribe to the philosophy of Dan Hicks. How could I miss you if you won't go away? So hopefully that is how you feel about us. Curious if any of you know who Dan Hicks is. I do not. Who's Dan Hicks? No. Dan Hicks is a singer from the 70s from a band called Dan Hicks and his Hot Licks. And his number one song is kind of a one-hit wonder. And his number one song was How Can I Miss You If You Won't Go Away. Oh, wow. 
Okay. So highly relatable content. Thanks, Chris. <laughs> <laughs> so to celebrate all of these milestones, we are going to be doing one of my favorite episode configurations, responding to listener questions in our mailbag. So these are all uh, things we've gotten to our Gmail account or on Twitter or sent to us through direct message. But maybe one more bit of thanks before we dive in. I want to send a special shout out to our Patreon subscribers, folks who listen to this and chip in anywhere from $3 to 50 bucks a month. I mean, for me, I, I know, think we all feel this way. It absolutely blows us away each time we think about uh, the fact that folks want to support what we do on this sort of consistent basis. Uh, the support really, really helps. We have been able to pay our volunteers a meager honoraria for the work and effort they put but in. But if you pay them, are they really volunteers? I think we're all asking that question these days. Mm. Oh, shoot. Are we <laughs> asking are that asking. question? Yeah. <laughs> we're all going to end up in front of the House Ethics Committee. <laughs> but yeah, we're also able to cover our costs, invest in new equipment when our old stuff breaks down, which it has from time to time. Uh, we've been able do some paid ads which has helped us expand our audience a little bit so if you like what you're hearing uh doing a podcast is not free and the more we get support we get the more we put into this so for those who have uh supported us super huge uh thanks okay let, let's dive in we got sent some super amazing questions from our listeners uh that run the gamut from uh political and wonky to super political and wonky so uh excited to uh share them with you um so let's Let's start. Uh, so Ryan St. John asked, does the annual plow match winner get a boost in the polls? Does skipping it hurt your chances of re-election? And what is the best food at the match? No, just so folks know what the plow match is, uh, Ryan is referring to the International Plowing Match, which is an annual outdoor gathering expo held in Minto, Ontario. That is apparently the biggest outdoor agricultural expo in North America. I don't know how that's measured, but that's what Wikipedia says. It has turned into a huge political event due to its importance to rural Ontario, and the Ontario legislature actually suspends sitting for two full days so that all political party leaders can attend. Uh, and they actually are required to hop on a tractor and attempt plowing in front of people, um, which is always quite the photo op. So yeah, the plow match. How does it uh, How does it impact your politics? Have any of us actually been to the plowing match? I, I personally have not. I haven't either. It was always viewed by the you know chiefs of staff and political staff as like this rare reprieve where all the bosses were gone, so you could actually <laughs> focus on on work. Uh, and but I I know. We would always send, of course, staff with our with our ministers, and so you'd hear about it. You'd hear about the corn on the cob and the ribs and things like that. But no, I've not personally been. And they all take a bus together, right? The, uh, the at they least do, the Liberal yeah. Caucus did. They all get on a, I guess, I don't know, a school bus or a charter bus or something, and head out to to Minto, Ontario, and then head back again. It must be a fun ride. There definitely is like a like an ethos, like a political thing around it. Like you always hear who plows the straightest line or whatever <laughs> you could tell you could tell i grew up on a farm i've got all the, <laughs> got all the lingo down but i don't think it matters that much in the grand scheme of ontario politics like i don't think there's a boost in the polls or anything like that yeah i definitely don't think there's a boost i definitely think you could lose if you didn't show up i think it's important enough of an event that you have to show your face and you have to get into the tractor and plow something, um, even if you do a poor job. Uh, I think the voters, or at least those that the rural uh, people in the international plowing match represent, would be slighted if you didn't show up. Um, so, I mean, I you know I don't know how much of a positive impact it has, but it definitely could have a negative one. Um, but it's also, I think, an interesting one since it's so rural and it's so focused on rural issues that sometimes the parties take it as an opportunity to make some rural announcements or they highlight the things that they've done for rural Ontario. Um, but, you know, we also have to watch out that we don't always assume that everyone in rural ridings uh, are conservative. And this is a question that will come up later in the mailbag. But you know, the, it hasn't always just been conservatives. That's just been the last three, four election cycles in Ontario. Um, there used to be lots of NDP and liberal rural ridings, especially in southwestern Ontario where the Liberal Party was founded. 
also i would say the the media reports about the polymatch every year and so there's a uh, i think a lot of work that goes into trying to shape the the writing of the articles about it uh, the premier usually makes remarks and uh, there've been a number of years where either Kathleen Wynne or Doug Ford uh, got uh, you know some negative coverage because the crowd at the plowing match was not particularly appreciative of their presence uh, and so those kinds of things definitely get reported and that that can reverberate around the province I have two thoughts about the plowing match. One, um, I love every year the pictures that come out of it. I am looking right now at a picture of our former boss, uh, then Minister Mitzi Hunter, uh, on a tractor. And, um, you know, it's just sort of like a, it's like, when else are you going to get so many pictures of so many important, powerful, smart people on tractors looking very uncomfortable. Um, <laughs> yeah, the other thing is I had no idea what it was before I literally worked in a minister's office. I worked at Queen's Park for four years before and I never heard of the plowing match and I was like interested in politics too. So it's, it, I think it might be a, a little inside baseball, but now it is inside baseball that all of our listeners know. All right, so moving on, uh, Devin DeMarco asks, is it a given which party will be the main opposition to Doug Ford on the center left in the next election, or is that position still up for grabs? I, so I, maybe I don't understand the question. I think the question is asking who will be kind of the main opposition if you're a progressive voter to Doug Ford. I, so I'm definitely like biased. I think, so I think if you look at the polling, it's the liberals um, that prime to take that spot and that a lot of the people that switch from the liberal camp to the NDP camp will uh, switch back um, would be my sense. Um, I also think that there's this sentiment that has set in, at least in the chattering classes, that, you know, Andrea's best shot was 2018. She couldn't deliver. And so we're not going to back that horse again. Do you know what I mean? And so I think if that those sentiments hold, it's the liberals to lose. But Stephen Del Duca is a pretty unknown quantity still. And so I don't think that's set in stone. But like if I was a betting person right now, I would say it's the liberals. I would just say that on the uh, picking up on the point about the NDP, the fact that they are the official opposition and not a not an unsubstantial official opposition too. you know, they control a lot of the legislature. I'm kind of amazed that they have not used this opportunity better, define the agenda and redefine their public image to be ready for the next election. I mean, they still have some time to do that, but it's easy to look at things kind of in that sort of center, left-wing, right-wing lens. But a lot of the public doesn't view things through that lens at all. Like there are ideas uh, like a wealth tax that poll well, even among like center and right-leaning Ontarians, despite the fact that it's a you know a progressive idea. And so I think the NDP has had a platform to really explore what it might be like to take some of the progressive parts of their agenda and put some money and time into figuring out how to make those ideas sort of sing in the suburban sort of centrist swing ridings that you need to win an election. And I just haven't seen them do that work. Whenever I hear anything from Andrew Horvath, it's always just about what Doug Ford is doing and that it's fine like i we we do that every week but you know we're also not trying to win the next election so if the public still sees the ndp as the far left party which i i i'm not saying is correct it's not a, i don't think a correct way to view the ndp but it is you know the maybe what the conception is the it, it's advantageous to the liberals and i think you know without something changing that's what it'll be but of course we're in a world where everything's changing so much so who knows i don't know how this lands but how much of this is affected by how federal politics shapes out in the next 18 months to two years uh, a lot i think a lot <laughs> yeah yeah i mean and i'll tell you the conversation that i've had with some uh, I don't know if you want to call them liberal insiders or not recently, but the idea that we'll, we're likely having a federal election before the next provincial election means that there will be, whether a handful or a lot of former liberal MPs in Ontario, because we have, I can't remember what the number is, but we elected about two thirds of all the Ontario seats um, federally went to the liberal party right uh, yeah they're not all going to win 
So there's going to be a deeper bench of candidates who will run provincially because um, we had about five candidates run federally who were on the provincial bench the previous election. So there's going to be better known names out there, I think, by 2022 representing the liberals. And you might get some uh, new Democrats running, too, if they don't win or they don't see a future in federal politics as much and they want to stay closer to home. I think like if we just take the current moment, um, people are not necessarily pleased with the liberal government and so federally. And so just wondering, what does public sentiment federally look like provincially? I know that there's often there's like saying that if Ontario goes conservative provincially, then it tends to go liberal federally and whether in a post-pandemic, hopefully post-pandemic world, that rationale still exists? Or is it really about what Chris was saying, you know, because people don't think of things as left-right or red or blue or orange, it's more about the public policies that are put in place because so many people have lost their jobs, have lost their health benefits, and are really thinking about still big questions around how do you um, manage your budget when there is so much need out there. So, yeah. I, I have one quick thought on this before, uh, and, and, it, and it picks up off of that, which is that like the COVID response, I think is, is, has, uh, it'll be really interesting. And I don't think anyone can know how that's going to change things. I mean, um, there is still a lot of volatility. The federal liberal approval ratings and the provincial conservative approval ratings we've seen over time really tied to the people's attitudes about that COVID response. Um, and I have seen, I think that Doug Ford has probably maybe successfully shaken some of the centrist kind of like swing voters uh, who were never going to vote for him back into potentially considering a PC vote in the next election. And the federal government, I think, is moored to that same wind. And but so if things suddenly go really south with COVID and people start viewing the government differently, um, I think that we just have no clue uh, how that is going to impact the dynamics. The only thing that we know is that they're definitely linked and that the governments right now are being judged by their response to this pandemic. We've said, you know, it's probably going to be the liberals. It's going to be the liberals. If the gov if the four government is really strong and picks up a lot of those like sort of center or center right voters who can vote liberal, like, you know, it could end up working against the liberals in the next election too. Another political question from Noel Semple. What are the odds of an early election call seeking to take advantage of Ford's pandemic poll bump? Thoughts on an early election call? Okay, so I, I, I'm, I'm going to go on a limb and say I think that it's absolutely zero. I think uh, even though this government is chaotic, uh, they would be incredibly stupid this far away from an election to pull the plug early. Uh, and uh, I think they'd be punished severely for it if they tried to do it. I just don't think that there's any appetite for people to, uh, to want the chaos of an election and the uncertainty of an election in the middle of an already chaotic and uncertain period. And so I think uh, it would be uh, terrible for them to try to do it. Uh, I think the the actually more interesting case for me is what's happening here in British Columbia. I'm not sure if people are uh, familiar with it, but it's uh, um, been a little more tenuous for a few years because the we have a minority coalition government between the NDP and a couple of Greens who support them to barely give them a, a very, very razor thin majority. And uh, we're only about a year away from a, a regularly scheduled election in BC. So there's a lot more chatter about could uh, they pull the plug early and the premier has been sort of cagey about it. Um, so I, I think that's a more interesting case where you could see in a minority situation uh, or even federally perhaps uh, trying to orchestrate a situation in which the other parties have to take you down um, because then you might not be blamed for it in the same way by the electorate. Uh, but if you have a majority government, it becomes so much harder to, to pull the plug early. You take all of the brunt of that blowback. I mean, I agree with you, Alexi. It should be zero, <laughs> especially given we have fixed election laws and a clear majority government here in Ontario. But never underestimate a politician's desire to win the next election. Um, and so I don't put it past Doug Ford and the progressive conservatives. I mean, Brian Pallister just did this last year. He's the premier of Manitoba. He had a majority government. He called a snap election just three years into his mandate. Uh, last summer, he called it in the middle of the federal election. It was done before 
before the end of the federal election. He won another majority government. Yeah, he wasn't punished at all. And I know COVID sort of makes this a little bit different. But if they see an opportunity where uh, numbers are down, things look good, and they want to avoid another wave or some potentially bad news, I could definitely see them doing it. I mean, um, politicians keep making this decision. Sometimes they get rewarded for it. Sometimes they get crushed like Peterson did in 1990 when he had an early election call and uh, was absolutely destroyed by that uh, decision. It reminds me a lot of actually uh, 2011 in which the federal government and provincial government played like the dance of um, timing. Do you know what I mean? I think a lot of it is going to depend on when the federal government falls or if they fall um, and how that all plays out if I'm making any sense. Um, so I don't rule it out at all um, just because of that dynamic. Does that make sense to anybody? Yeah. It I, might also I, depend I, who's the leader of the federal conservatives as well, right? I mean, I don't know if Aaron O'Toole or Peter McKay are going to do better um, against Justin Trudeau, but if they do and Doug sees that as bad for him, I think that's the point that you're making there, Sam, and whether or not that has a an impact on that decision provincially. Aaron O'Toole is calling the We Charity scandal the biggest scandal in Canadian political history. So, you know, um, <laughs> if uh, if hyperbole has any effect on it, uh, you know, I think that we are uh, in for some interesting times if he becomes the leader of the Conservative Party. Did he forget about, you know, residential schools, Japanese internment, you know? <laughs> even, even like even like liberals. I don't think we's even the biggest liberal scandal. Um <laughs> Uh, but that, that's uh, that. This is a discussion for a, a future question because uh, we have to talk about because we have to move on to a question from Kate Graham. Uh, we love Kate Graham. What do political staff look for or steer clear from when considering what politicians to work with, and what is the best kept secret about working at Queens Park? Ooh, two very good and and different questions. Um, I would say, uh, in terms of politicians you're considering to work with, I mean, I've I've been lucky enough to I worked with five different ministers, all uh, women, all fantastic, uh, and um, but you know you hear stories about. Uh, people and we all know there were people in caucus and, and ministers who were not good to work for uh, and I mean it's not to me it's not rocket science like there's a, a sort of a baseline humanity here that unfortunately sometimes there are politicians who just just aren't good people um, and it's it's not it's not any more for me that like you just need to be a good fucking person take the time to understand what your staff actually do show you care about them a little bit uh, it's, you know, that's, that's sort of the very baseline. If you can, if you, if you're sure of that kind of thing, you're, you're probably going to be okay working for a politician. Uh, if you want to know f more detailed, uh, information about whether a minister is good to work for, I, I would recommend going to their legislative assistant. I think the LAs spend a tremendous amount of time with them. Uh, it's often, uh, in stressful situations and, uh, those individuals, uh, have an insight into the, uh, personalities of their minister that, uh, not everybody gets to see all the time. So that would be my tip. Yeah, I, I agree with Alexi. I think um, there are definitely uh, good staff who are out there working in politics for all parties, and they're looking for decent human beings to work for and their MPPs and their ministers, um, because they've heard the horror stories or they might have worked for some um, terrible people before. I don't know why there are some or so many terrible people in politics um, across the parties, but uh I don't know something about the the building or or the position or the uh, the spotlight uh, sometimes brings out uh, the not best in people. Sometimes new staff get stuck um, because they're in politics and they seem to be sort of blinded by the bright lights and they kind of get stuck putting up with really shitty bosses for years until they realize they don't have to work for a shitty person. And I and I like to defend politicians because it is a tough life to get into and it's a tough job to do. Um, but there are definitely those who shouldn't uh, be there and people who don't know how to manage staff or treat people. Um, and you start hearing stories like our current governor general, where it's not necessarily harassment or inappropriate, but it definitely is. Uh, I would echo the good people. I would also add to the list um, ability to retain and aggregate information over time and also know what level of in what level to engage at is like a really important thing you know uh it almost like actually almost just like any job you don't want a boss who is like getting into the super weeds of everything that you do who want to establish a relationship of, of trust allows you to you know like you know like do your job and 
gives you clear, consistent expectations that you can then, as a staffer, impart to the ministry. Because, of course, you're kind of the go-between between your minister and the ministry. So if the minister is not a consistent person or they change their mind on things all the time or they don't – not that changing your mind is a bad thing all the time, but like if it's like constant and there's no consistency in direction from them, uh, that can be uh, difficult as well. Oh, I just thought of a, I just thought of a hot tip for anybody looking for a job in politics. Um Find out how many people had your job uh, in the last year or two. If it's mm. if it sticks, if six people have had your job in the last twelve months, that is not somebody you want to work for. Don't take that job. <laughs> That's a pretty good barometer. Um, do you guys think there's a related question? Do you guys think there's something about people who go into politics, at present company excluded, of course, who uh, that like it just attracts? There's sort of a, like a, a correlation in terms of personality. Uh, you know that it. I don't want to say deficiencies, but types of personalities that sort of lend themselves to uh, sometimes being a little, uh, I don't know, authoritarian or maybe maybe it's more of a it's more of a sort of a, a self-important maybe is the better term for it. A little narcissistic. Yeah, I don't, yeah. I don't think authoritarian <laughs> is right. Yeah, like, the, of course, there's like a celebrity to wanting to be the person on the ballot and and the face of it, like a thousand percent that's why a ton of people get into it right and so there's a high type a energy there's high narcissism levels in all types of levels of politics right and a lot of the staff are like that too because they want to be politicians themselves that's why they like politics right and so there's like it's a high type a working environment right and so uh i think you know kind of echoing chris what i think is um, it depends what you're like as a person, but as a staffer, like there are ministers who are way more hands off on the details. Uh, and then there are ministers who, you know, are into the details, but that's a double-edged sword, right? That kind of depends what you're looking for. Cause when they're hands off on the details, that really shifts a lot of the responsibility to you to get it right. Right. Like it weighs on you, you know, at night and whatnot, did you fuck this up as your ministers out there, you know, um, whatever announcing the thing that you've cooked up and so um it's good and bad right i think also the uh link between uh you can get the you can get narcissists you can get people who are type a um the the being a good person can also work for you like if you work the kind of person that makes sure to remember people's names that that gets to know your staff that can project empathy and make people feel calm and good around you. That's sort of the other side where that is also, I think, a really valuable skill, not only for retaining good staff, that's the kind of person that I would always want to work for and I was lucky enough to work for. And, you know, that also is a good political skill for just you as a politician. Um, and I wish more people in politics remember that. Maybe we could do a quick rapid fire on what the best kept secret about working at QP is. I was going to say something uh, not necessarily related, but related. I think, uh, one of the best kept secrets of Queen's Park, and it's antithetical to a lot of narratives around civil servants, political staff, and politicians, is that they are some of the most hardworking and dedicated people you'll ever find at work. And so I yes. think it's really important to remember that. And so whether there are public servants that um, that are, you know, really try to further the government's mandate, I think what I've always seen is that like a, a real trust um, with amongst public servants to to do the best that they can to further the mandate, but also try to provide the best advice that they can. Um, so I'll leave it there. But yeah, I definitely think people don't know that some of the smartest, most hardworking and dedicated people work at Queen's Park, regardless of the party that's there um one is that there is a tunnel from the legislature to uh the main office buildings that all the staff work in this is when before the renovations and nobody worked there but uh there is a very weirdly lit tunnel that goes back and forth and so uh it's actually one of the places where there's the most like interaction between people uh across party lines and whatnot is uh, everyone shuttling back and forth and you never have to go outside uh which as Grim mentioned there are very long days and so um that can be uh, quite helpful but also depressing um <laughs> and then this comment is a bit inspired by uh, a chat we were having this week about the we scandal and um 
uh, Harmon, our, our one of our volunteers, was mentioning about the conflict of interest of like Morneau and, and uh, Trudeau not stepping out of the Wee scandal. And we were like, but like the way cabinet works, that's not how it would have um, that's not how it would have gone down. And it was like a reminder that, you know, witnessing cabinet meetings is like kind of a rare thing that people don't really talk about, like how it works and mm-hmm. just the general chaos of the decision-making process. Like it is not as like thoughtful as you might think. A lot of items get like a few minutes of discussion. People are having lunch. People are having side conversations. People are getting briefed on the side that there's just like, it, I think there's like this, you know, aura about it that is not played out, at least in the reality of the Ontario Liberal cabinet. Um, And not to say that important discussions don't happen, they certainly do. But I just think there's this impression that each item is like, you know, heavily debated and studied at length. And it's just there's just so much volume that flows through cabinet that that's just not the reality. It's an approval body that approves things by nature of the cabinet being in a room. It is not necessarily everything getting an up or down vote uh, that, that, that happens. So it, yeah. yeah, it's a little bit, a uh, thing that when I, when I was in my first cabinet meeting, uh, a thing that I was uh, shocked to see as a person who's prepared many decks for cabinet that I'm sure got no discussion time whatsoever. Um, all right. So uh, moving on uh, to Michael uh, Zlosowski and uh, apologize, Michael, if I butchered uh, the pronunciation of your last name. I did look it up, uh, but I could not find a, you know, here's how to pronounce. Uh, so apologies, because I'm sure I got that wrong. With the introduction of Bill 195. No. So I, we, I, we called it, we called Bill 195 the omnibus bill yesterday, but Bill 197 is the omnibus bill. Bill 195 that... Um, Kara Halios uh, basically kicked out over is actually not the omnibus bill. It's a related bill around extending the emergency provisions. So we should probably put in a little mea culpa here that we made a mistake in the pod last week about it. Unbelievable. I, the, it's the first mistake in Ontario Loud history. <laughs> um, it might be the first correction in Ontario Loud history. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, Michael is referring specifically to a clause that has nothing to do with code recovery. Uh, that directors of education no longer need to be former teachers. So it used to be that if you wanted to be a director of education, who are, of course, the people that run the school boards, they're the, um, the head of the school boards for the staff side. They're not, so they're not trustees, they're not elected, um, kind of the school board equivalent of a secretary of cabinet. Um, do you think this opens the gates for, pro- private, for privatized, two-tiered American-style education? I think that's a bold statement, privatized two-tier American-style education. I think it's a worrisome change. I understand why they decided to do it. There was pressure from, you know, uh, that predates this government and certainly on us um, to open it up. And, you know, I think there's worries, uh, as there should be, based on this government's track record of um, appointing insiders and uh, party uh, favorites to important positions of power. So it's not that um, the concern is without uh, merit. I think I just, the flip side of it is also true that, you know, for example, there are, you know, university presidents or um, people from that, you know, don't have their Ontario teacher certification, but are educators in other countries or whatnot that would be very interested in running an Ontario school board, but are not allowed under the current rules. And so these incidences would come up when we were there too. And so like you could imagine very qualified educators that are not an Ontario College of Teacher certified teacher, not really being that upsetting to people. I think it is more worrisome if they have ideas of like you know, business people coming in and making education more efficient or whatnot. Like there are, I think, I think the concerns are valid, but I also think you could see how it would play out in reality in a completely non-worrisome way. And, you know, Carleen Jackson, who's now the interim director of the Toronto District School Board, people, that's kind of some of the same people who are applauding the fact that now the three largest school boards in Ontario, Ottawa, Peel, and Toronto are run by three black women, which is great. Um, we're, we're voicing concerns about this change, but Carleen Jackson is not a teacher. She's a uh, um, She was the first, former associate director of like business and operations. And so uh, but, you know, is steeped in Ontario school boards and will hopefully do a fantastic job. So I think it's just like it's a complicated change. I think the, the, some of the public debate has been over um, exaggerated on both sides. I know that's not a very like straightforward answer. I just like I, I see both sides, I guess, is what I'm saying. 
Yeah, no, I, I agree. I will also just say that um, it is, I, I think that there is no, um, there's a, uh, I disagree completely with the way this was done. I think with education um, and any time where you have a culture in a sector, like it's the kind of thing that you might've wanted to consult on if you wanted to roll it out in a way that, you know, didn't get people's hackles up or, you know, create conspiracy theory, you know, you could have rolled it out in a, in a way that would, would be inspire less worry. Um, but of course the Ford government isn't necessarily interested in doing that. Uh, but I, yeah, I'm, I'm not necessarily sure that, you know, you need to be a teacher to run a school board. Well, that's kind of my, my take. So moving on, Matthew Garrett uh, writes us saying uh, he comes uh, from a rural southwestern Ontario family. He says most of my relatives aren't died in the world conservatives, but and can actually see the harm that conservative policies can put on certain people. But they find that their voting decisions are colored by the liberal brand being intermingled with the image of corruption. How can supporters best address this narrative? Are there any ethics or integrity of government policies that are overdue in Ontario? <laughs> yes. I mean, where to start? I mean, stop fucking doing things that make you look corrupt. That's a good start. Um, <laughs> you know, friend of the pod, Epicus Data, did some polling earlier this year about uh, the brands of political parties uh, and the perception of the brands by the public. And the number one negative for liberals was corruption. Uh, well, the number one negative for conservatives is they lie too much. So if you know that that's your biggest perceived flaw, and we all know politics is is mostly perception, then why wouldn't you go out of your way to make sure that everything you did was and always appeared to be above board? These own goals, these, uh, you know, self-harm that the party keeps doing to, to themselves drives me fucking crazy. Uh, we've seen this playbook before. We've seen this with this government before. You would think it's somebody's job there. And I know a lot of people who work there. It should be somebody's job there to make sure that everything looks above board and that it's not um, going to be perceived as corruption. That should be somebody's job. I don't know why it isn't. Yeah, I would agree with all that. I would say uh, two things to add and more in terms of how to make this better in the future. I think the fact that our political parties are increasingly uh, become taken over by the leader means that this this really is not just a party brand issue, but it's, it's going to be uh, solved by leadership as well. Um, to the point that Alvin made, we need, I mean, all political parties, but especially the liberals need a series of leaders over a period of time who can break this sense and uh, push back and create a new brand that is uh, much more about, you know, promoting democracy, promoting an inclusion of, of all voices and perspectives and less uh, giving off the sense of, um, you know, that sort of backroom deal um, brand that unfortunately shines through too much, uh, regardless of uh, of who's the leader. And uh, I mean, it's easier said than done. I mean, Ka Kathleen Wynne um, got branded uh, in this over uh, a lot of the um, the ways that cabinet was raising money, for example, in Ontario, uh, and I mean, she was um, the farthest thing I can think of from from corrupt. Uh, but it still uh, is difficult when these narratives take hold to to shake them. So it's, I'm not saying it's easy by any means, but it's I think it has to start with leadership. Um, and it wouldn't hurt. I mean, as as a sort of proposing the question, it would be great if if the liberals uh, did a little bit more on democratic reform. Uh, and I think we're going to talk about it later in another question on the in this um, mail bag but um there's there's a lot of room for uh the party to come up with a uh, stronger yeah stronger ethical uh guidelines um changes to campaign finance rules to further um uh, strengthen them uh, and reduce the the need for for fundraising as part of of politics um and just just not um you know really being much more careful about the the optics of uh, being close to certain parties um that then get benefit from the government i mean it's uh, it's hard uh, to actually do but um it, you know it's it's easy to um to sort of see see what needs to happen in my opinion the only thing i'll add when lxc sort of mentioned it is public funding for political parties such that they don't have to you know go out and fundraise and get into the a lot of these ethical messes uh is a position that liberal party should be pushing uh i sort of think back to the episode we did with David Mosscrop about how like in some case the solution to the problem with our democracy is more democracy um I think progressives are progressive parties in general liberals or conservatives are at their strongest when they are talking about those things and um you know like we've seen with the we scandal that too much of a tie to leadership can create problems like I mean you know it's it is very interesting to me 
I have no doubt that the mechanisms around Trudeau and Morneau probably, you know, did think about conflict of interest. There are people who look at these things, but if in the leader's heads, if, you know, you're making so much money that you don't understand that, or you you can forget about a $41,000 piece, like that is that, like, I'm not saying that anyone's intentions there were bad, but that is a vulnerability that needs to be thought of carefully and cautiously. And I don't think often enough is in a very leader centric culture uh, of a party like like the Liberal Party. And actually, all parties are, have similar problems. So I would just say that the government could do a lot better job, on, uh, in particular in Ontario, on open data. There are governments that do great jobs in open data. We have a very... Uh, we're getting better, but we're still very tight on data control in Ontario in comparison, which... And the Ford government, of course, took a number of uh, watchdogs down uh, in his first uh, couple years, thinking specifically the child advocate, um, the environmental commissioner, uh, you know, these are areas that we need focus on and we need people on. And uh, I would be putting more third party agencies that have real power to sort of like analyze the government's decisions, give the public good data, give good information and democratize that. All right. Uh, next, actually, question is kind of related from Aaron McLeod. How do we push for election reform? Um, you had a great episode about joining political parties but how, uh, and how that can have a huge impact. Perhaps that's the answer. Uh, to get more involved as individuals, but I'm wondering if you have specific suggestions about how we can improve our elections. We often hear about strategic voting, but I'd love to see us move past that. Uh, I mean, Aaron, I think that's a great question. Um, as you, we mentioned on the pod, join the parties, push your agenda, um, <laughs> maybe join more than one party, because even though parties all tell you that you can only be a member of their party, none of them actually share that membership data with other parties, because obviously it's confidential and they don't want to know how many uh, members other people have. Um, so even most provincial liberal parties don't share their data with the federal cousins, which was always a surprise to me. So none of them know you're joining other parties to potentially push your agenda. Um, and the other thing that I've always struggled with, because uh, I've supported electoral reform for years, is that we end up arguing with ourselves over what's the best method, whether it's ranked ballot or alternative voting or single transferable vote or whatever it is. Um, don't let perfect get in the way of better. Than what we have. And I find that too many times we get into the weeds of the reforms that we're proposing that are out there. We don't, uh, we're not 100% in love with it. So we don't vote for it. And it, and we end up with no reform at all. I'd like to see us adopt and try all the methods and see which one is better. So always say yes to any type of reform that's out there. Um, support and encourage uh, other levels of government. There are a bunch of, I think, over 150 municipal governments that are voting online now in Ontario, which is great, out of 450 uh, who now have that option. Um, we want to enfranchise as many people as possible. And we actually have Elections Ontario and Elections Canada that are looking for more ways to get people involved, unlike in the U.S., where they're actually trying to suppress people who, from from voting, uh, we have a completely nonpartisan professional uh, group at Elections Canada and Elections Ontario who are looking for different ways. People need to know what those are, and people need to get involved in them. Yeah, I'd like people to stop, not have to strategic vote either, but until we can change the system, you need to do that. Yeah, it, it, I think just within the Liberal Party, uh, I, I am personally still disappointed in Justin Trudeau for for sort of cynically abandoning his promise to move past first past the post. Um, and I think it's important that people in the party um, voice those kinds of opinions because uh, you don't want to send the message that uh, that you can make those kinds of calls and not have people disgruntled about it. And, and that's why I think that it's important to share those perspectives. Uh, and and generally, I think uh, you know, unfortunately, this is a this is a uh, an issue that's going to require continued mobilization of of people, uh, education of you know masses of Canadians, and and that is happening. That's great work that a lot of organizations are undertaking. And I do see, I mean, I'm optimistic that in the next, you know, 10 years, we're going to have at least one province uh, switch to something uh, at least closely resembling um, some kind of proportional representation. And, and I, I think that that will um, help to accelerate things once we can uh, break through that, that first crack in the dam on this. Yeah. I think you actually need somebody to get elected on a reform agenda. And this is what they did in New Zealand. This is the example I like to give during the leadership race. Just change the damn system and then have the next election done under the new system. And then the election after that, you're still using the new system, but have a referendum of 
Do you agree that the system that we changed it to is the better one? Or do you want to go back to the original one? Right. That way people experience it and can actually see in practice what it's like, because right now there's just it's too easy to fear monger and to show people or just tell people and lie and say, we're going to be electing communists and crazy people to, to government if we change the system or you're going to give too much power or there won't be enough power and it's all going to be chaos. You need to show people what it's going to be like before uh, before they can be convinced that it's better. Hot take. I think marginal uh, a marginal communist representation in our government would make the legislature much more interesting uh, <laughs> second hot take i'm against online voting i just need to put that out there since you sort of said it was a good this idea of like a part of me and this is going to sound really like nerdy um but i think a lot about politics in the united states and how um a convergence around two parties has uh, driven their politics at completely out of hand and has sort of driven populist rhetoric. And so with this like winner take all mentality, even though, especially in presidential elections, um, you have like, you have to vote down the ballot and there's a lot of complexity in it. But anyways, all of that aside, I do think that if we want to, if we want to actually make some headway against populism and, and the pain that populism is creating in our society, we cannot do that without electoral reform. And so the, by sort of just uh, delaying it and delaying it and not doing it, um, where we're giving rise to the winner-take-all politics that has taken over m- many countries, and I'm worried will co- and will continue that trend. So our last question today, and this has been a it's been a long uh, a longer episode, but uh, it'll be the last you hear of us for a while. Um, they are from our own volunteer Harmon, and they were so fun that I wanted to put them in here, uh, even though it is a little Ontario loud asking Ontario loud, but uh, I these are these are really good questions. Um, so Harmon is asking us if we had to spend a day with any of the provincial leaders, who would we want to hang out with? Uh, everyone has to answer this, and we are not allowed to bring politics into the answer. I think the Ford. I think Ford. Like, I think if politics, if we don't have to talk about politics, like, I think he's an interesting dude. And I would like to, like, see him tick a little more up close. And he might bring a joint. (laughs) (laughs) Very true. I mean, Ford Ford sounds like fun, right? If you're not talking about politics, I mean, think about (laughs) think about him and his brother. And then I guess the crazy times they had that would be interesting to see and and sort of watch (laughs) in person. So, yeah, I mean, that seems like a, a riot. Yeah, you get some cheesecake. You might get some drugs. <laughs> some hashish at the very least. Allegedly. Allegedly. Yeah, and he'd be cool with you drinking anywhere. Um, at any time. <laughs> at any time. At any time of day. I want to see this cottage of his. I you know, I want to see how uh, uh, what was so pressing that he had to go and open up his cottage during COVID. The so, one where all the black youths are helped? Yeah. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Uh, I would uh, I would say probably Mike Schreiner. Uh, he seems like a cool guy. Um, but I think it's also interesting to interpret this question uh, as expanded uh, for like all the leaders over all of Ontario's history. And then there's some interesting names that come up from history. I think uh, like Mitch Hepburn, who's a liberal premier back in the day, would be interesting. He was an onion farmer. So, I mean, that's cool. Uh, John Robarts, the PC um, uh, premier, would be interesting. Also, I think Stephen Lewis on the NDP side. So... Uh, and then thinking even outside Ontario, because technically Harmon didn't say Ontario provincial leaders, um, I, I think it'd be fun to spend some time with Rachel Notley. She seems uh, dope. You just cheated. I want, I want to put that on the record. What do you mean? <laughs> he, you found a technicality. Uh, nobody wants to hang out at Stephen Del Duca's new swimming pool? <laughs> <laughs> I, I actually think, yeah, that, right that, is, that is a strong, that is a the presence of a pool, I think, squarely put Stephen Del Duca on the list of current leaders um, that we should consider hanging out with. Uh, if we're allowed to consider past, uh, we did get to hang out with Kathleen Wynn on the podcast, and that was one of my favorite episodes. I agree with Mike, um, and I would be up for the adventure of Ford. I mean, I don't know. This is like these are a lot of good hangs, friends. This is like these are these are some some quality hangs on the on the on the dock. But I've been thinking about this, and like I'm gonna sound meta about this but like what do we mean by provincial leader and so like if it's a party leader 
then uh, yeah, I think Mike Schreiner would be cool. I think the premier I've, yeah, I think like as a person to just hang out with, I think the premier would be cool to hang out with, but I also am, and this is going to sound like really strange, but I love Kate Graham. I just think that she's absolutely smart and knows her stuff and is in politics for um, all of the right reasons. And so if I could ever hang out with her, I would. I, I, we can arrange that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I can make that happen. <laughs> um, I'd probably just stay quiet because I'd be so intimidated. But uh, <laughs> but uh, yeah, I just think she's just so cool. So yeah, I'd say I... I, I, I agree with that 100%. All right, Harmon's next question. Would any of us ever run for office or run again in the case of Alvin? Will there be a 2022 Ontario Loud Caucus? Alvin, I think you I think you have to answer. Yes is the indication I've been giving people. So uh, <laughs> <laughs> I Only said I would run again in, in a hypothetical world. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no. I'll run again as long as Rebecca continues to support me and... Uh, as she has been over the last several years. <laughs> so as long as that happens, uh, yeah, I will definitely be on the next uh, ballot in 2022. And we need, but we need more candidates. Everybody needs, uh, you know, 120 something candidates. So uh, there's definitely space for other people uh, on this pod to, uh, to join that uh, ballot candidate team. I personally have no, I don't have any political ambitions in, uh, in any foreseeable future. Uh, likewise, likewise. Yeah, and actually, Sam, we've talked about this a couple of times. Working in politics has made me think twice about the life, and, and and also given me more respect for the people that actually do it. Um, I don't want you know that to be a just taken uh, by you know uh, Alvin, you or Kate Graham <laughs> or anyone listening to this as a disparate. Like I, I have so much respect for people who choose to do it because it takes so much out of you. Like I am a people person. I love. I you know I I get and see if I spend too much time by myself, like more than a day. I'm not an introvert, but um, working in politics as a minister staffer, like I would just come home and like my roommate would like want to hang out. And I'd just be like, I need a couple hours of alone time because I've just spent my whole day talking to people with people. And like, you know, uh, like Minister Hunter would be like, you know, going off from like maybe the two or three things she was doing with me and then off to like an evening event and then a weekend event. And then like, it's, it's a, it's a relentless life. I don't know. Maybe one day if I like feel like I have my personal life totally set and in order and, you know, I've done a lot of the personal things I want to do and I've, you know, like, um, I'm older and I have some time on my hands, but, <laughs> but like it's, it's, there's it's there's a, never a perfect uh, time, Chris. There will never be a perfect time. <laughs> I want to hear Grima's um, answer to this. Grima, would you run? Yeah. Oh, I don't. I don't think so because I'm just not. Um, this is going to sound really strange, but I think that there's like a certain level of loyalty needed, and I would just get so frustrated with all of the stupid things <laughs> and and feel like I'm not being a team player. And so, like, even if it's, like, policy positions that I don't agree with, um, and then, like, the threat of being ejected from caucus, as we saw this week. Um, yeah, I just, I've, 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 unless there's, like, some flexibility on that. And also, like, I am, I enjoy reading and thinking and not talking all day. And I remember being a civil servant and just watching political staff and and political leadership just talking all day so it's not that I'm not a people person but I'm not that much of a people person and I just yeah I kudos to those that can do it so I'm gonna say that this is you know bad for the world because you guys are all amazing people and this is part of the problem right then you get I'm not saying people like me but you get other people who are kind of shitty who outnumber people like you who should be in politics, but all this shit of politics makes them uh, not want to get involved. Right. And mm -hmm. for, for women, especially you have to be asked seven times before you really consider whether or not you will run for people of color, for people in the LGBTQ plus community. It's so much harder. So 
you know, I'll keep pushing you guys to try and think about running one day, but everybody who's listening should continue pushing anybody they think who should run uh, for politics to do so because we need better people in government. I think there's two things we probably should clarify, or I would like to clarify um, based on the conversation. One is that there have been, um, and I've, you know, I've worked with um, introverted ministers who are fantastic. Uh, and so it is not a requirement that you be an extrovert in order to go into politics. And I don't think anyone listening should should think that. Um, and all kinds of different people do take the plunge. Uh, number two, uh, just remember that there are many people who make a tremendous impact on politics and public policy in Ontario who are unelected. Uh, and I think all of us who have been staffers know uh, just how true that is. So, um, Yes. Anyway, many ways to contribute. All right. Well, the last one was just as a perfect cap. We'll, we'll, we'll do it and then call it a day. Harmon asked us all what our favorite episode was. And um, Chris, you go first in honor of the 100th episode. You never answer first. I actually two favorite ones. Um, I really sort of three that are tied up for tourists. Uh, first, I really liked the episode you did, Alexi, with Shirley Tillotson. It was the idea of doing a book club, I thought, like, and getting into, like, the history of tax policy and how surprising that was. I, I just, like, learned all kinds of things that I didn't know uh, and had never thought to think about, which is kind of the whole point of why I like doing this podcast and what I think this podcast should be about. Having Kathleen Wynn on was obviously amazing. Um, she's been an inspiration to me for my entire life following politics. And as soon as I was aware of her career, so being able to talk to her was such a privilege. What will always hold a, a, a special place in my heart, though, is the episode where Sam recounts the Integrity Commissioner report about Dean French and the OPP. <laughs> um, yeah. That when we released, uh, Randy Hillier retweeted. <laughs> Uh, because he hates Dean French so much. He like didn't care that we're a progressive politics podcast. He was like, yeah, because um, A, that report was just frigging crazy. And B, um, it was fun to hear like you read it in a way that it's sort of like, you know, it's like it was so crazy and stupid that like a set of events. It was just so fun to dive into it with uh, with you. Um, I feel like before. the true crazy town of the Ford government during the Dean French days is like a long lost memory now. And we should like revisit it sometimes. Absolutely. I will quickly say, I don't remember when this was, but when we did the cabinet uh, shuffle prediction, the first cabinet shuffle prediction, um, is I think my favorite episode. I still sometimes go back and listen to it and like laugh out loud because Chris, you were like basically on LSD and like got so (laughs) (laughs) meta about the exercise and Kate's takes were hilarious. And it was just like one of those early morning recordings that ended up being really funny. That's my favorite. I like the episode we did around creepy dudes because I think it really gave us a chance to (laughs) sort of talk shit about some terrible people. Um, Yeah. Which also led into the uh, great conversation we had um, with Tiffany about you know women in politics and and how hard, how hard it is for them to get involved and and things like that and I, and I love the idea that this pod can help reduce and break down some of those barriers. Um, I really enjoyed Chris's episode when he did the book review on uh, of Patrick Brown's takedown book. I thought that was <laughs> oh <hilarious>. yeah. <laughs> Uh, go back and listen to that uh, one don't read yeah, the book want- <laughs> just listen to the pod go back to narcissists in politics yes exactly uh and then speaking of myself i really liked the uh the episode where we went through my child care announcement and i uh, said that i was running for leader i thought uh, this was the perfect venue to do that because uh we'd been together for so long talking about these kinds of things and uh, i wanted to say that that was part of the reason that uh i was comfortable enough to make those types of announcements and uh, push those push that kind of agenda. Uh, I think, yeah, I, mean, I, I those are all great pods. I, there's a lot that, and we've talked about this a bit, that goes into these pods that listeners don't, uh, don't get to see or experience with us. And so as a host, I think the ones that I've found uh, the most memorable and stick with me are the ones that I've put the most into myself. Uh, and so uh, I think Chris mentioned uh, the Shirley Tillotson book club. I, also the one with uh, Donald Savoy, I think was uh, just, a, they were both really fantastic experiences uh, hosting those just because of the ability to really engage with the material in their books over a period of time and then and then to get to talk to them about it afterwards and people who are just so uh, fantastic in both those those areas uh, so those I think for me are, are probably some of my favorites and then obviously the ones where Grima was a guest because I mean obviously I mean obviously <laughs> um, 
Yeah, I really, really, really enjoyed the Shirley Tillotson one too. I, I like often think about her book now and um, act, like want to read it um, because it's just thinking about history and history of taxes so underexplored. Um, but I also really enjoyed Sam's pod um, a couple of weeks ago, maybe months ago now on um, Pride is Political with Rachel Clark and Kevin Heron. Yeah, I just yeah. I thought that the timing of it was great. The conversation was great. The guests were great, and also just in that moment, um, issues around around race and racism um, kind of really hit the public imagination and um, how race and policing in Pride have evolved um, over the past decades um and into now moving into the future i thought was really interesting that's on my mountain too i think i think uh also uh anyone out there who's interested in starting a podcast uh it is a low entry barrier way to talk to some really interesting people uh is one of my takeaways from this whole experience thank you listeners for sending in your questions uh for engaging with the show for listening um we will be back in september and i'm gonna do this at ed- Etron. <laughs> <laughs> he's 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 been tearing up everyone and that's why it's just it's hard <laughs> Another behind the scenes. I'm actually gonna. I'm gonna cut it. I'm gonna cut it. I'm gonna be like. I'm gonna. I'm gonna leave the. I'm doing it in post. In. And that is all the time we have for today. Thank you so much for listening. Uh, not only to this episode, but for all of season three of Ontario Loud or parts of it that you've listened to. We will be taking a short month off. Kind of feels weird because. Uh, a, we love doing this pod. B, so much needs to be happening every day. We're afraid to miss it. But, you know, if you don't take any time off, we will be too burnt out to cover it well. Uh, and, you know, we need some time to prepare for some exciting things we have planned for the fall. So we will miss you while we are gone. We will see you in September. But in the meantime, you can get at us at Twitter, at OntarioLab, at OntarioLabMail.gmail.com or at ontarioloud.ca. want to thank Aisha Anwar and Harmon Mundy for all that you do for the podcasts. Ontario Loud is Sam Andrew, Alexi White, Alvin Tejo, Green Tower Kapoor, and myself, Chris Martin. That's it. That's kind of all I got for the intro. There's no next week. I would normally say, hey, join us next week for a thing, but not there this week. So we will see you in September. Have an amazing, safe summer. Enjoy the weather. Enjoy your friends and family. And we'll talk soon.